Welcome to Thrive HR, a podcast by Thrive Pass. In this show, we sit down with industry leaders to explore the world of HR and everything it has to offer. I'm your host, Andreas Deptola. You got to be an employer of choice, a place people yeah. want to work, and you'll have to be very, very on top of being competitive with your wages. On today's episode of Thrive HR, Andreas is joined by Sam Wolkenhauer, regional labor economist at the Idaho Department of Labor. The two discuss U.S. inflation and how it affects the overall labor market, income distribution, and the role the pandemic played. They also talk economic forecasting and what to expect. Hey, good afternoon, Sam. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time today. And it was nice to meet you a couple of weeks ago at the Napa conference. Yeah, likewise. Maybe let's let's start with with you with your background, right? And then also you know, your current role, what focus you have in your current role. Sure. So I'm a labor economist with the state of Idaho. So my educational background was in economics and mathematics, and I've I've always also kind of had a personal fascination with history and geography, which are very, very intertwined with economics. So I guess you could say I've kind of specialized in some of these more macro subjects. I I do have a research role and that tends to focus on things like demographics and labor market projections. But the other half of my job, because it's not just a research role, is giving lots of presentations, speaking to the public, sort of economic education, if you will, because the thing about economics is it's really not that complicated. Almost everybody can understand the major plot points of what's going on in the economy. So we don't want to make economics, you know, an ivory tower that's closed off to people. We want to be really open and interface with the public and try to educate people with what's going on, which is obviously where this fits in. So that's perfect. Awesome. Yeah. And I think today specifically, we want to, you know, break break down the current economics and, and how that relates to the mm-hmm. labor market, right? And what kind of what kind of expectations, you know, we should have in terms of the labor market and whatnot. But let's let's maybe start off with yeah, inflation, right? I think everybody yes. feels the current the current effects of inflation, right? Whether you're buying mm-hmm. gas or you know other things. Maybe start telling us what you're seeing in the market. What are the the, the causes for the inflation that we're seeing right now? And then also, if if you want to provide us with some yeah reasonable prediction, so to speak, of the next 24 months, right? What should we expect here? Yeah. So inflation is quite elevated right now. It's been ranging between eight and nine percent for the last couple months. So this is the highest inflation has been since the 19. 19- 70s when the world went through a major inflationary period back then it was due to oil shocks right that was still you know soviet union and america didn't have fracking so the world was much more dependent on middle eastern oil that's what caused inflation the last time around this time it's different it's linked to the pandemic in the sense that the pandemic disrupted supply chains It made global transportation really, really tricky. I thought it was kind of funny because I think this was last year. You remember that ship went sideways in the Suez Canal. And for most people, that was probably the first time that they ever really thought about shipping, global shipping. Mm -hmm. But that's a major, 
major, it's a very complicated system that operates behind the scenes. And it's what's responsible for moving an astonishing amount of raw materials and products around the world. And that's how we're used to getting the products we want fairly cheaply. That whole system really got thrown off by COVID and it, it, you know, there's still lasting disruptions from that. So there's supply chains that are thrown off. And then if Russia invading Ukraine was not helpful in the least bit, uh, of course, that's a multifaceted tragedy, right? But it also severely roiled food and energy markets. And so it's not a coincidence that the two categories where prices are up the most are food and energy. And so that's essentially what's going on. So right now, inflation is running a little over 8%. And over the next couple of years, this is expected to come down, but not nearly as quickly as people would like. So if you look at inflation expectations in markets, you're kind of seeing something like maybe 5 or 6% inflation is expected for next year. So down a little bit. And then maybe more like three or 4% the year after. So you can kind of think of this as like it's it's over 8% this year, probably 2024, end of the year, inflation will be back down to normal levels and it's going to slowly come down over the, these next two years. And you mentioned that inflation is not the same across product categories, right? So you mentioned that uh, I think energy is one of the product categories that, that sees higher mm -hmm. inflation. On the contrary, what are some of the other product categories that you see with lower inflation? And what, why is that the case? Yeah, so the, the two categories with the highest rates of inflation right now, the big overarching categories are food and energy, which unfortunately are two of the most important categories for most people. Right? So it's actually not a coincidence that these two are linked because the price of energy has a lot to do with the price of food because it's linked to free costs, right? Cost of transporting food around the country, but also ICER costs are very closely associated with, with the price of energy. So as the price of energy goes up, the price of fertilizer and food production goes up as well. Then we have other categories where prices are, they're up, but it's not nearly as significant. And these are more of the more goods like apparel, more electronics, things like that. Only alcoholic beverages are not considered food in the CPI. They're in consumer goods, which I think kind of makes sense because maybe we feel like it, but we don't need it to live, right? So funny enough, price of alcohol is not up much at all. So the price of food is up about 12%. Alcohol is only up three and a half percent. So it's some of those consumer categories, apparel and electronics, things like that, where prices are not up quite as much. And of course, you know, that's a good thing, but food and energy is what people need to live. They need to fill up their car to get to work. They need to turn the lights on and they need food. And sadly, those are the categories where prices have risen the most. So you mentioned that in your forecast that hopefully inflation will will level out here over the next 18, 24 months or whatnot mm -hmm. uh, and, and decrease. We, we, are, we are all hearing that the Fed is increasing interest rates right? in order to do so. From your perspective, how far will the Fed go, right, in order to slow down the economy? How willing, yeah, how, how willing are they, how far are they willing to go in order to get inflation under control? Yes. Yeah, so they have been raising interest rates pretty steadily. Mortgage rates are already up in the seven plus range, which is has unheard of, right, for the last, you know, 15 years. And 
the Fed has essentially communicated that they will gladly choose a recession over runaway inflation. And that is the correct choice, because if inflation really gets out of control, there's a perception that the Fed no longer has the ability to bring it down. It can be very, very hard to stop. And if you look at the Western world in the 60s and 70s, you know, inflation was a major issue for a decade and they absolutely do not want that. So they are raising interest rates and they are not going to, what would be the word? They're, they're not going to chicken out just because the economy starts to wobble a little bit. It's kind of the way to think about this is if there's a mild recession, I mean, nobody wants a recession, but it might last a year or two to, to clear all the effects of it. Mm-hmm. It's a much better situation than a decade of high inflation like you had in the in the 60s and early 70s. So they definitely see a, a mild recession as the lesser of two evils. And if trying to tighten up and, and slow down the economy does result in a mild recession, I think that's a price that they, and honestly, most people would, would be willing to pay to avoid a decade plus of runway inflation. You mentioned that food and energy prices are rising really, really quickly. And I assume that like, I mean, for, for most of us, these are things that you need on a daily basis, right? For other categories, what have you seen in terms of consumer spending? Is that decreasing now, stable? What do you see right now in terms of trends? Yeah, so that's actually been interesting. And it, it has to do with the stimulus checks and the amount of savings that people built up during the pandemic. Because so far, consumer spending has been pretty stable. So what we've seen is we had the pandemic. They had stimulus checks. They expanded unemployment benefits. Rents were deferred. Student loan payments were deferred. And people were saving money. They weren't going on vacation. They were putting off major purchases. They were kind of in a you know, a savings mode because of all the uncertainty about about the the recession and the pandemic, people saved a lot of money. So when we came out of the recession or the the pandemic, excuse me, the American consumer had quite a bit of cash on hand. And as prices have gone up, they've basically been eating into that. So there's this kind of cycle going on where the consumer built up a cushion, kind of built up this, this cash reservoir. And then as prices go up, They've been able to afford those higher prices, but they're spending that, that, that rainy day fund down. So all that cushion that we built up during the pandemic is slowly getting eaten into by the prices. And at some point, probably in the next year or so, we're going to hit the point where all of that wealth that was built up from the stimulus checks, all the savings, they've been spent down. And people have no choice but to throttle back their spending to reduce their, what we would call their discretionary spending, right? Food and energy, you, you pretty much always have to buy, but people will start to cut down on those other purchases and, and the economy will start to slow as a result. And it's super interesting. And thanks for, for breaking, that, breaking that down for us. If, if you're talking about this cushion, right, that was built from COVID, whether people couldn't spend it or got like additional stimulus checks, you mentioned this is going to run out eventually. Just out of curiosity, are there any ways that you, the economists can measure that and, and predict when that will happen? Yeah, so we do track things like real disposable personal income. Just a quick 
quick tip where you're looking at measurements, economic data, and you see the term real, the, the term real means it's been adjusted for prices. So it, it means you're adjusting and accounting for the impact of inflation. Right? So when we talk about real income, we're actually looking at what is the purchasing power of you know the average household's income? What's, what's the purchasing power of the consumer? And real personal income, so adjusted for inflation, is pretty flat right now. It hasn't gone into the negative. Um, so it means that for now, wages and all those savings that were built up from the stimulus and the pandemic, all of that is holding steady at the moment. But once we start to see that shrinking in, in the month-by-month month numbers, that's a red flag that we've reached that point where the consumer is basically being broken by the, by the inflation, that, that we've, we've reached that stress point where we can no longer keep up. And, and what are, on a, on a, maybe on a little bit broader level, the effects that you would predict in the upcoming years from inflation for the wealth of the average household in the United States? Or maybe you want to be a little bit more, speak for, for different socioeconomic classes, right? But if we now say it's 8% this year, seven, six, six, seven next year, and then and so forth, what will inflation essentially do to, to the wealth distribution? Yeah, so inflation in general, what inflation does is it punishes people who save because your savings and your wages, people who are dependent on wages, you know, who live paycheck to paycheck, they see their spending power get eaten away very, very quickly. Okay, so inflation is particularly damaging for the bottom 40% of the income distribution because those are people who they really have no cushion. Right. They, they, there's this expression that I really like. These are people that are often one disaster away from, you know, bankruptcy and unexpected car repair bill, trying to fix a major appliance. They, they have no cushion to deal with a major emergency. They have no financial flexibility. Those are the people that are very severely hurt by inflation because they're living pay to paycheck to paycheck on a pretty thin margin as it is. For the middle class, the professional class, inflation will be more like an annoyance in terms of you may have to scale back some of your more your, your luxury spending. Maybe you, you don't take a vacation, you take a shorter vacation, right? This is annoying, but it's not economic ruin. The bottom 40% or so of the income distribution, inflation can really compromise their ability to meet basic expenses. And so you might see a spike of people on public assistance. And as, as you're adjusting for inflation, the real poverty rate could certainly rise. So that's why it's so important to bring this under control. Because the way I like to think about it is even when there's a really bad recession, let's say unemployment is 10%. That's quite severe. Really, 10% of the workforce is being affected. Inflation has the potential to take out a huge swath of the population and put them in really, really difficult position. So the, the, the breadth of the impact from inflation is much more extreme than what you get from a recession. And that's why a recession is pretty much always going to be the lesser of two evils here. Thanks for thanks for outlining that to us. So so now let's maybe switch a little bit and go to the labor market, right? Which is re relevant for for a lot of our audience here. The companies still have trouble to to fill their positions, right? Why is that the case? Yeah. Where, where did everybody go? 
Yeah, that is the million dollar question that I hear all the time. There's a twofold answer. On a big picture, it's demographic. The working age population in the country has actually been shrinking for the last three years. So this is just related to the baby boomers retiring, and there are not as many young people coming in to replace them. So the the net demographic available to work is shrinking. But then there are other things going on that changing our ability to make the most of the population that we do have. And that's a multifaceted issue. Some of it is that education system has not necessarily trained people correctly for the, the jobs that we need to fill. So we don't have enough nurses and plumbers and electricians. A lot of skill sets are missing. So part of it is education. We also know that like the opioid crisis has made it so that, you know, here in the United States, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that just can't live productive lives because of addiction. So there are things like that that are chipping away at the labor force. But above it all is this demographic issue. And it's simply the fact that with the baby boomers retiring, there's no way out of this squeeze. When your working age population is shrinking, even with a perfect education policy and you know, minimal dis- disability and drug abuse and things like that, you're still going to face a labor shortage. And really, this is something that we're seeing across the industrialized world. As countries get older, you enter this phase of kind of a perennial eternal labor shortage. It's all coming from the demographics. So let me, so, so you, you outlined at least two, two key issues here. One being just like a shortage of, of labor, right? By, you know, having, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, less people in the country, right? And then also the education as, as one other example. If, if you could pick three policies maybe that you would put in place in order to counteract that, what, what would that be from a government perspective? And then maybe also for our audience from a, from a company perspective, right, from a private sector perspective, what can be done to, to counteract some of these effects? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not a policy guy. So what I'll do is I'll tell you the three big problems, and then I'll leave it to people smarter than me to figure out how to fix them. <laughs> so number one would be the opioid issue. This this takes out hundreds of thousands. It's almost exclusively men, and they just cannot live productive lives. So if, if you wanted to get a big shot in the arm in terms of getting people back into the labor force, fixing the substance abuse issue would be the first thing. Child care availability is another big one. We know that child care has become very, very expensive. Right? And so forces a lot of families to be single income families when they would probably prefer to be dual income, especially if you have more than one kid that you have to have in child care. It often the math doesn't work out. You're not going to break even on the second parent working. So the substance abuse, the child care, and then the third would just be getting more young people to go into the trades. One of the major bottlenecks in this country is a shortage of skilled construction workers. We have a housing shortage in many parts of the country. That's why homes are outrageously expensive. And it's hard to fix a housing shortage when you have a shortage of all the skilled labor that you need. So those are three things that would really be beneficial in terms of providing adequate labor. But even with perfect policy, when the demographics are shrinking, you're going to run into difficulties with hiring, right? Because there just are not enough 18-year-olds 
coming in to replace the 65-year-olds that are retiring every year. And is that problem pretty much focused here in the United States or what do you see in, in other markets like China or back in Europe? It's actually significantly worse in most other parts of the world. And the reason for that is the United States, well, let's take a step back. Pretty much everybody, every country had baby boomers. Everywhere in Europe, in East Asia, there was a big generation of people born at the same time that the American baby boomers were born. So 60s, essentially. The American baby boomers did something that other baby boomers did around the world, and they had a piece. They're really the only boomers globally that hit that new kid mark, which means they basically replaced themselves numerically. Most other countries, the baby boomers did not reach the two child per family mark. So their population began to shrink sooner. The, the fastest aging countries are three the three major East Asian economies, Japan, South Korea, and China. These are all countries that are expected to shrink drastically. There's 1.3 billion Chinese. And by the end of the century, there are a lot of projections that say there might be 500 million at the end of the century, just because their population is getting old so fast. In Europe, Germany is the oldest economy. And that's unfortunate because it's also by far the largest and most productive economy. And so what I always say is the reason Germany has been such an economic powerhouse is because for most of the last few decades, This was a country full of middle-aged engineers, many of whom were childless or only had one child. That's an extremely productive population. The problem is that eventually all those middle-aged engineers are ready to retire, and then you pay for it on the backside with not enough young people to replace them. So in Germany, there are almost twice as many people in their 60s as there are in their teens. It's about 70% more in their 60s. And that's obviously just not a stable situation for the workforce. So in the United States, it's not great, but it's actually better than in most other places. The only countries that are mostly stable population-wise, besides the USA, are France and New Zealand. For reasons that elude me, I'm not a Huge expert on New Zealand's demographics, but uh, it's pretty slim pickings. Pretty much everyone else is shrinking and getting old very quickly. Well, I guess New Zealand also being a fairly small country, right, might, might have some yeah. special effects here. Is there any good news? We are obviously battling right now with, with inflation, shortage of labor markets, less you know, people. What, what is the silver lining here? Yeah, so I would answer that with a little bit of a sort of a historical, I don't know if you want to call it a parable, I guess not, a historical lesson. Okay, So in the 60s, there was this massive oil shock and the price of energy skyrocketed. And you know it was very much sort of a the sky is falling situation. And something very kind of funny happened where the US government issued this statement basically telling businesses that they needed to switch to more energy you know energy efficient modes of operation and that we needed to switch to less energy intensive types of industries. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's funny is because America isn't a command economy like the Soviet Union was. In the Soviet Union, you would actually have to do that to tell people. The U.S. government didn't need to tell people to do that. We have an economy that's responsive to prices, right? And so over time, we have reduced our dependency on coal. We've become far more energy efficient. And so 
the good news is sort of the universal good news of Western economies. It's that they're flexible and they're intelligent. They respond to shortages with innovation, with new technologies and new mechanisms. And so it always looks like there's some sort of horrible disaster that's you know impossible to to deal with. Western economies are flexible, they're intelligent, and they find ways out that big clunky command economies cannot. And so, for example, just recently the the White House issued some new rules severely restricting China's ability to access Western computer chips, right? Because most of the high-end processors, semiconductors in the world are made in the United States, and China has to buy them from us. And most of the chips that are made in China, they they stole the technology from Western countries, right? So China is this big command economy that's now really stuck in a really rough position of not having access to high-end computer chips. And they don't have a flexible way to respond to a crisis like that the way Western countries do. So when there's a problem, when there's an economic crisis, the best place to be is in the economy that is flexible and intelligent and innovative. And that is the Western economic system. Yeah. And I think that you said it well, right? In every, in every crisis, there's also opportunity, right? Opportunity Absolutely. For, for innovation. I hope that, you know, you obviously mentioned the price of oil going up, right? Hopefully this is now also a catalyst for clean energy, for renewables and whatnot. I was on a call this morning with a couple of my teammates, somebody from Florida, somebody from, from Colorado, where a lot of Sundays, right? And they both mm -hmm. have a solar panel on their rooftop now, right? And can operate their entire house with it. So hopefully we see this also as a catalyst for, for positive change. Yep. And there's no system in the world that is as responsive and as flexible that can make intelligent switches in the face of rising prices or shortages like Western economies do. And that's why I, I just think it's so funny that in the 60s, the government told, you know, told businesses, you know, we need to become more energy efficient. Well, businesses are going to do that anyway, because they don't like paying high prices for energy. Right? So, so the market drives innovation and it drives responses to these challenges And that is the ever-present silver love being in the West. And, and what, what would you recommend human resource leaders? What, what are the big things we should think about as, as we are preparing for the, for the future? Yes. The thing to remember is that we're not going to go back to, quote unquote, normal. A lot of people, I think, are hoping, and it's understandable why they would hope this, that over time, we'll just go back to having plenty of labor that this is, you know, it's related to the pandemic or something like that. And over time it'll fade, but the demographics are shifting in a permanent way. And a tight labor market is probably going to be our permanent reality for a long time. So you cannot expect to find success being passive about human resource issues and staffing, right? The workers are not just going to fall into your lap because there's some super abundance of them. It's going to be tight. And it, this is going to be an issue where permanently hiring and human resources is a point of proactive strategizing and higher effort. I think that over time, people will come to universally understand that hiring is a 
it's a C-suite issue. It's a, it's a top floor issue. This is not something that's just going to become a low effort autopilot type of problem. You're going to need to attack hiring very proactively to succeed in the future. And to, to, to your point, that that's exactly you know a lot of it. What what, what we are seeing, whether it's the C-suite or board levels, right? Where I think the most forward-thinking companies these days, right, make that a, a top priority, right? Well, that is yeah, yeah. You got to be. Sorry, go ahead. You got to be an employer of choice, a place people yeah. want to work, and you'll have to be very, very on top of being competitive with your wages. Right? And if you're not being proactive about that, you are really not going to find success hiring given what we see in the demographics loitering under the surface. It's it's just not going to be possible for everyone. You, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation something really interesting about inflation, how it specifically affects you know the roughly 30 to 40 percent of the low economic class right and, and just affects them mm -hmm. in more severe ways are there any things that you can think about that companies can do specifically for that demographic to support them in a really meaningful way well well there's two things that i, I would comment on this number one is the silver lining here with the inflation is that with the labor market so tight A lot of workers are seeing pretty significant wage gains. So wages are rising quite quickly right now. And those rates of gain are going to vary across industries. But workers know that they have the leverage. They know that there are a ton of openings out there. And so they're shopping and they're hunting and they're bidding employers up against each other. The other thing, and this again, this speaks to you know flexibility and finding solutions. I think the shift to working from home or hybrid work from home arrangements has really helped a lot of people because gasoline is is one of the biggest cost pressures right now. It's it's one of the fastest growing price categories. We all know how expensive it is right now. And I think people should not underestimate the impact on work from home in terms of minimizing commutes, especially in big cities, right? Where people are now free to move out into the suburbs live farther away from the corporate office, and they're not stuck on really congested roads for hours every day. So, so that's helping a lot as well. And maybe just add a, a third category, right, that you mentioned earlier is, is certainly education skills, right? As, as we, yes. as employers can help our employees to learn new skills, right, to progress in their career and yeah, increase their, their yeah. earning potential. I think that that's really another thing as, as we can grow these companies and, you know, provide these opportunities to the employees as well. Yeah, upskilling is, is very beneficial, not just in terms of, you know, making employees more productive and useful for your company, but it also really contributes a sense of satisfaction for, for workers to feel like they're progressing like they're not static, stuck at their current level. So that's pretty much always going to be a win-win for the employee. Thank you so much for, for, for taking the time today for our conversation, specifically for, for breaking down these, these fairly complicated concepts, right? And, and providing some perspective and predictions here in the, in the near future. I truly enjoyed the show. If our audience wants to connect with you, maybe somebody wants to engage with you on a speak engagement or whatnot, but what's the best way to connect with you? The best way is to send me an email And you can actually find my email on the Idaho Department of Labor website. 
there's a tab that'll just say roll info. And if you click on that, my name will be right at the top. Perfect. That is easy enough. Well, Sam, thanks again for, for taking the time today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Have a great evening. This podcast is sponsored by ThrivePass, a trusted HR partner for innovative benefits technology. From lifestyle spending accounts to pre-tax to COBRA administration, ThrivePass has you covered. We personalize benefits. You thrive as the employer of choice. More at thrivepass.com. Thank you.